A young man called Beth Goodrich was being initiated into the cadet corps at a university in Texas. One night he was forced to run until he dropped. But unfortunately, he never got up. Bruce Goodrich died before he even entered college. A short time after the tragedy, Bruce's father wrote a letter to the administration, to the faculty, the student body, and to the cadet corps. I would like to take this opportunity to express the appreciation of my family for the great outpouring of concern and sympathy from Texas A&M University and the college community over the loss of our son, Bruce. We're deeply touched by the tribute paid to him in the battalion. We were particularly pleased to note that his Christian witness did not go unnoticed during this brief time on campus. Mr. Goodrich went on, I hope it will be of some comfort to know that we harbor no ill will in the matter. We know our God makes no mistakes. Bruce had an appointment with his Lord and is now secure in his celestial home. When the question is asked, why did this happen? Perhaps one answer will be so that many will consider where they will spend eternity. The point is, the father did not blame anyone. The father was not angry with anyone. The father was not, uh, did not accuse anyone. But the man before us in Jonah chapter 4, he did have a problem. And the sad and tragic thing about it all is he had a problem with God. He had a problem with God. And so as we come to think about the opening words, of this chapter tonight. I've given the message the title, What a Way to End. What a Way to End. Now, had we been penning this last chapter of our autobiography, most of us would have closed the book at the end of chapter 3. Better to finish on a spiritual high. But this final chapter is like an anticlimax to the book. And it makes very painful reading. I say that because we see Jonah in his true colors. And it's not a pretty sight. It's definitely not a pretty sight to see a man or woman angry. It's not a pretty sight at all. If this book had ended at the end of chapter 3, history would have portrayed Jonah as the greatest of the prophets. After all, preaching one message that moved an entire city to repentance to return to God was no mean accomplishment. He would have been considered to be a great hero, maybe one of the greatest prophets of all time. But Jonah saw what God did, however, and he was greatly displeased. He did not rejoice in the accomplishment. He did not rejoice in what God had done he did not rejoice that a whole city turned to God in faith and repentance. One author said he blew his top. And another said after he flipped, within a few minutes he flopped. After this magnificent city-wide crusade then, 
which was more successful than anything that we've ever experienced. We are given a picture of the main preacher, which is quite shattering. That's what we have here before us tonight. It's not pleasant. It's not a great way to end the book. It's not a great way to end the story. But this is the way it is. Now, I don't know what happened to Jonah after this. I I know that he uh, wrote this book some time after he returned to his home uh, in the land of Israel. But I do not know exactly what happened. As he closes the book, he's an angry man and his fist is shaken in the face of God. Let's, Let's think for a moment or two about Jonah's anger. As we start reading this fourth chapter of Jonah, we are shocked. We can hardly believe our eyes. Jonah has preached God's word. Amen. The entire city has turned to the Lord. But, notice that word but. There's a contrast here. Think about what happened in chapter 3. The preaching. The anointed preaching. The conversions. The humility of heart. The king has humbled himself before God. Think about what happened in chapter 3. But then when we come to this particular chapter, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Now, most preachers, including myself, long for a move of the Spirit in his congregation or in his town or in his village. But one preacher who did not was Jonah. The whole city completely demonstrated its repentance. There's no doubt about that. They they humbled themselves before God, yet he was angry. He took no pleasure in that great work of God's grace, that gracious outpouring of the Spirit. He saw God work mightily and miraculously in his own life. He saw God work miraculously uh, through his ministry and the lives of others. But now look at him. He's sulking. And I suppose a word that we might understand well is the word huffing. You know, it's like to huff. We've done that ourselves many a time, no doubt over the years. So here we have this preacher, the man used of God to preach a revival message that saw tens and tens of thousands of people swept into the kingdom of God and he's huffing. He's sulking. One preacher uses the word pouting. It's pouting here in this particular chapter of God's Word. Now, there is a point I want to emphasize. I speak, including myself. The best of men are only men at best. And you can see that word but here. There's a contrast. In chapter 3, there's great, a great accomplishment. In chapter 4, we have great anger. Now, one author wrote... It isn't enough for God's servants to do their masters well. That's something that we ought to strive for, every one of us. They must do it from the heart. Ephesians 6, verse 6 makes that abundantly clear. The heart heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. And that's exactly where Jonah's problem was. It was in his heart. His heart was not right. It's hard to believe just the way God used this man in such a way and yet now we can see him in a completely different light. We're disappointed with him, of course. And of course we're disappointed with ourselves many times because of things that we think and things that we say and things that we do and how we feel. So I don't think any of us are strangers to anger. 
because we all have expressed that and felt that on different occasions. The significance of the chapter lies in the contrast between God's response to Nineveh's repentance and Jonah's response to Nineveh's repentance. When God saw the works of the people, and they weren't saved by works, but works proved that they really did repent. When God saw their repentance, he showed compassion. He showed mercy. When Jonah saw what God did, he was displeased. Now he's displeased with God. Very dangerous place to be. Dangerous ground to be angry with God. And he was angry with God. He wasn't angry with the king of Nineveh. He wasn't angry with the people of Nineveh. He was angry with God. And the Bible makes it clear in verse 2 that God was slow to anger, yet Jonah was quick to anger. If we could only be slow to anger, it would save a lot of tears, maybe. A lot of division. If we would just think about what we were going to say or do. The more he thought about it, the angrier he became until it really consumed him. He could think about nothing else. That was the only thing in his mind. It consumed him. And when a person begins to think about nothing else but the problem that they believe is wrong, it will eventually consume them. He sank deep into resentment against the Lord. Can you imagine it? He's angry with God. He was seething with discontent. He was unhappy with the results. The Hebrew word for anger means to blaze up. It means to glow. I think you get the picture by these uh, words, the meaning of this particular word, or to grow warm or to wax hot, if you like, to be incensed. That's the picture we have here, this preacher. So the basic meaning of the word is burning and consuming. Jonah was burning with anger. We, we can say that he was fuming. We can say that he was furious. And he was not just angry. He, the Bible says he was very angry. And he was not just displeased. He was exceedingly displeased. And the word anger is used of God. Now, let me clarify something here. It's clarified in the original language. The Hebrew is quite clear in this matter. The word that is used for Jonah's anger is not the word used of God's anger. It's a different word altogether. It's a word linked to the nostrils. And therefore often translated snort. And when the word is used, it implies the snort of righteous indignation. There's a difference between the anger that Jonah displayed and the anger of God. God's anger was righteous indignation. And so the whole tragic thing about the story is this. That Jonah was furious with God. He was fuming at God. Now, he's arguing with God. And we don't need to ask the question, who's going to win this? We know right away he's not going to be the winner. He's going to come out of this badly. He's fuming with God. He's raised his, fuse, his, his puny fist in the face of God. A person who is angry, I read, on the right grounds, against the right persons, in the right manner, at the right moment, and for the right length of time deserves great praise. Let, let me say it again. A person who's angry on the right grounds against the right persons 
in the right manner at the right moment for the right length of time deserves great praise. I don't think that could be said of Jonah. And maybe not of ourselves at occasions, God forgive us. God have mercy upon us. Be gracious to us. He knows our frame. He knows the way we're built up. Now, a lady came to Evangelist Billy Sunday many years ago, and she tried to rationalize her angry outburst. She was renowned in the village and renowned in the church for these angry outbursts. So she came to the evangelist expecting to receive some kind of sympathetic word. And this is what she said to the evangelist. There's nothing wrong with losing my temper, she said. I blow up and then it's all over. So does a shotgun, Billy Sunday replied. Look at the damage it leaves behind. That's true. Simple illustration. And I sort of had a laugh to myself when I read it, but how true that is. Let me say it again. So does a shotgun, he replied. Look at the damage it leaves behind. Now, when I was thinking about this whole idea and thought of anger, I came across a little uh, story about a national park ranger in British Columbia who had uh, two sets of huge antlers as wide as a man's reach locked uh, together. Now, apparently, two bull moose began fighting. May have been over a woman. I don't know what the situation was. Their antlers locked, and they could not get them free. And they died due to the anger that they had. I read that in the National Geographic, November 1985. Ben Franklin said, whatever is begun in angers ends in shame. Anger is never without a reason, but seldom with a good one. So here we find this man. This man who was greatly used of God. This man whose name means dove. This man who has received at long last a message from God. He has decided to obey the command of God. He goes to Nineveh. He begins to preach the word. Eight words in the English he preached. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And suddenly God comes down. God blesses the preaching of the word. And the whole city is moved to tears and repentance. God has used this great man. Oh, he's a hero. National hero. Great man of God. But now, here in these verses... We can see that he was just an angry man. Obviously, he was not right with God. God still had work to do in this servant. Maybe God has got to deal with us still. He's still working in me. Maybe we can sing that little chorus or that little hymn as well. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. He's still working on me. So we have Jonah's anger. But then in the second place, we have Jonah's attitude. So what did Jonah do when he was angry? Well, the Bible tells us in verse 2, he prayed. And for a second time in the book, now he prays. But when you study it for yourself, when you study verses 2 and 3, you will discover that it was an angry prayer. An angry prayer that reveals some of the poison which he had which had invaded his relationship with God. But the point is this, at least he prayed. And I'll try to explain that just in a moment. That this was certainly an advance on running away, as he did in chapter one. We can see that he ran away completely. But the second prayer was much different in its content to the first prayer in chapter two. 
and in content and intent. He prayed his best prayer in the worst place, in the belly of the great fish. He prayed his worst prayer in the best place, in Nineveh, where God was working. In the first prayer, he's praying to live because he must be suffocating down there in the belly of the great fish. I mentioned this before. I wouldn't like to have been there. I don't think you'd like to be there either. But that's just where God has brought him to because God wants to teach him to pray. So he's praying there and he's praying that he might even live. And in this prayer, as you study for yourself, he's praying to die. What kind of a character is he? One minute he's praying to live and the next minute he's praying to die. The first prayer was from a broken heart. Oh, he's manifesting repentance. He's been away from God, but the Lord is drawing him back and he's looking again to the temple, to the sacrifice. And he's drawing near to God. And what he did in drawing near to the temple is what we do when we draw near to Christ, who is our temple, the sacrifice for our sins. So the second prayer is prayed this prayer from an angry heart. But really, it's got to be said that He's acting like a spoiled child. He's banging on the table. His fist is raised before Almighty God. You can see that. You can see maybe a child unrestrained who needs some discipline. We all have children at different times in our experience with how to deal with them, to teach them to walk right. But it's a human nature coming out even in a child. If they don't get this, if they don't get that, I don't like that, I don't want that, I don't want to do that, I don't want to go to bed yet, and so on. What is that? That's human nature being manifest. So the father or the mother who loves the child wants to improve the child, so we've got to discipline the child. So here's the spoiled child. He's banging the table. I don't want this. I, I don't like this. I have no pleasure in this. Shaking his fist at God. By the way, he leaves the stage of history shaking his fist of God. That's what I said earlier. I wonder exactly what happened to Jonah after this. What was right about his prayer, may be asked. Well, he prayed at least. He had a grievance with God, but he talked to God about it, you see. That's the thing. You know, here, here he's got this grievance against God. He, he's offended by God's action. At least he talks to God about the grievance he has in his heart. And so we've got to commend him for that. He talked to God. At least he was honest about the thing. He didn't pretend. Then said the Lord, verse 4, the Lord answered Jonah at this time. Now what was wrong about his prayer? Well, really, if you look at it carefully, he was preaching in his prayer. He said, now, Lord, didn't I tell you? Jonah was trying to find not out God's will, but he was trying to tell God Jonah's will. We've all been guilty, have we not? Maybe that's presumptuous me saying that, but I know my own human heart. And I must put my hand up and say, yes, Lord, this is true. Be very careful now how you respond to that. The Lord knows. He knows everything. We have listened to such prayers. They were really sermons. And so 
we need as the people of God to beware of making prayer a platform for preaching. Remember, we're talking to God, not to men. And I have heard people in different places over the years preaching in their prayers, nothing to do with God, preaching, getting at somebody else. And that's wrong. When we pray, we pray to God. We don't pray to impress men. This prayer certainly didn't honor God. Remember who we talk to tonight when we draw near to the throne of heavenly grace. Never use prayer as an opportunity to get your fellow believer. Or remember, you're always talking to God. And the real reason he fled to Tarsus is brought to attention here. Verse 2, and he prayed unto the Lord. Okay, he's praying to the Lord. And he said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my own country? Did I not tell you this back home? Therefore, I fled before unto Tarsus, for I knew. Now, somebody does something, and you think to yourself, well, that's a bad move. And then when that mistake comes to light, sometimes we, are ten, we tend to say, I knew it. Has that ever happened to you? Somebody is going to make a wrong move, and uh, they've determined to take a certain course, and then maybe you thought in your mind, well, we'll just wait and see. And sure enough, the decision that person made was wrong. And then we hear it, and the next thing we say, didn't I tell you? I, I knew it. That's what John was saying here. I knew it. And what did they know? He knew that God was merciful and gracious and full of compassion and slow to anger. He knew that. That was really the reason why he fled to, uh, to Tarsus. He didn't want to go because he knew that God would spare the people through his ministry. Now, his selfishness is manifest in the use of personal pronouns. I, my, me, mine. Ten times in this short prayer. Ten times in this short prayer. He uses personal pronouns. You can check those out for yourself. And verses 2 and 3. And then chapter 1, Jonah is like the prodigal. And uh, he's insisting on doing his own will and going his own way. In chapter 4, he's like the elder brother. Instead of rejoicing uh, at the return of the brother and sharing the father's happiness, he's saying, I knew it. He's bitter. He's critical. He's angry. He's unhappy about everything. And you see, when God's people get out of touch with God, they get unhappy about everything. And everybody, nobody else is right but them. I knew it. I knew they shouldn't have gone that way. I knew they shouldn't have done that. But they did. I knew it. I knew what would happen. And that's what Jonah's doing here. I knew it. So he's better unhappy at everything. So he, he, he begins his prayer with this phrase, I knew. I, I know this would happen. Jonah was concerned about his own reputation, I think. Not only before the Ninevites, but also before the Jews back home. Remember the time in Second Kings chapter 14, he prophesied that 
land would be restored to Israel and the prophecy was fulfilled that came to pass. He was a local hero because Israel was able to reclaim land that it lost. Oh, he's a hero. His prophecy has come to pass. But now he has entered into Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What's happening here? This prophecy is not going to be fulfilled. It wasn't fulfilled. Because God did not carry through according to the mind and the, and the thoughts of Jonah. God saw the works. God saw the repentance of the people and was gracious to the people. And so he feels now, he feels that, uh, you know, he's, he's got to be misunderstood. What would the people back home think of him now? That he was the means of saving Nineveh from God's wrath. They would consider this to be uh, a, to him to be a traitor to the official Jewish foreign policy. Because I'm sure the people back home were hoping that the, the, the people, the Ninevites, that, that whole people, the whole land itself would be destroyed. And yet it didn't work out that way. And when they hear back home of how it was through Jonah's preaching that the Ninevites were spared and the city was delivered and the city survived for 150 years after this. I'm sure his reputation was hurt at that time. And so he's been selfish. He's not rejoicing that God spared maybe a million people. He's not overjoyed with this at all. He's fuming. He's burning with anger at God. He's raging at God. And so he prays this prayer. It's a prayer of anger. Not a prayer that glorifies God. He had taken the message to the streets of Nineveh prior to this, but now the Bible says in verse 5 that he sat down. So he's taken the message to the city, now he sits down. Now he's sitting. This is the second time that he's abandoned the place of ministry. And the Bible tells us in verse 5, he went out of the city. If ever there was a time he needed to be in the city, was just after this move of God in revival to give counsel to do the work of a prophet. But he wasn't found in that place. He was no use to God at that particular time because he's sitting outside the city. He's left off his clerical garb and he's sitting out there outside the city. Does this not sound familiar? Remember Luke chapter 15, we've mentioned the, the prodigal and the elder brother. What happened when the boy returned and he was clothed with a robe, shaved and so on. The father gave him new shoes, a ring for his finger and so on. And they had this great feast. D did the elder brother enjoy the meal that night? Did he come in? Was he uh, there with his uh, younger brother rejoicing, happy? Glad that his father has a smile in his face again. No, he's outside. He wouldn't enter into the feast at all. He, he stayed outside and the father had to go out and say, we don't come in now. And so we, we find Jonah is outside the city. And we're told that he sat on the east side. Why did he sit on the east side? Why do we get this wee bit of information? Because the ground level uh, was higher on the east side. Therefore, he had an excellent view of the city. 
And what was he sitting there for? He was sitting there hoping that God would judge the city. He was sitting there hoping to see the city go up and smoke. Uh, he, was, he was out of touch with God. He, we see him now in his true colors and his true light. After what he did in chapter 3, we can see him now in his true colors. Disenchanted man, an angry man, a furious man. He's swimming with God. He's raising his fist in the face of a mighty God. He's in dangerous ground. Now, I said before, I don't know what happened to him after this. But of course, he had to return home. But did he maintain his ministry back home? He wrote this book. He's honest about the whole thing because I believe that he is the author of this book. And like the portrait of Cromwell, he told the painters to paint them works and all. And in the book of Jonah, we have works and all. Jonah told this story. He was honest about it. He declared this. Did the Lord change his heart? Was, was he used of God after this? I, I don't know. And the book ends rather abruptly. And he just disappears. And he steps off the stage. And there's a question mark over him. There's a cloud over him. Something has happened. He walks away. And yet God has been glorified. And God used this man to accomplish his own divine purpose and his own divine plan. In chapter 1, he's parting from God. He goes in the opposite direction. In chapter 2, he's praying to God. In chapter 3, he's preaching for God. And in chapter 4, he has a problem with God. I hope that you don't have a problem with God. I hope I don't have a problem with God. If I have, may the Lord give me grace to talk to him about it. And if I have a problem with anybody else, may God give me grace to talk to them about it. Here we see this man, and he's let us down. Sadly, may we not let anybody down. The eyes of the world are upon us. We have gazed upon this man and his ministry. We've been encouraged at times and discouraged at times. But always people look upon us. May they always see something there of the grace of God. And may we, by his grace, and his grace alone, seek to glorify him. What a way to end. We'll come back and finish the book uh, next Tuesday night in the will of the Lord. May God bless his word to all of our hearts this evening. Well, we'll get down to our time of prayer. As many as possible, feel free to pray as we Engage the throne of grace tonight. We'll ask one of our elders, Brother Mr. McCool, if he would lead us to the throne of grace in prayer. Then as many as possible, uh, join in and keep the matter of a minister before the throne of grace privately. Here tonight, pray about it. And uh, pray also for the Bible week that the Lord would come among us. And as the children's meetings continue, may the Lord move there and bring many of these uh, young children to Christ. So we'll ask our brother to pray and then as many as possible feel free to pray after our brother's prayer. Thank you Tommy.